So this afternoon we return to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. In the next section of the book, which also marks um, a transition in the book, transition from largely exposition of the superiority of Christ to um, the exhortations that are rooted in that and that flow from that. It begins in chapter 10, verse 19, this section, and goes to chapter 11, verse 40. But let's go ahead and hear the entirety of the section just this one time, and then next time we'll read from uh, in chapter 10, verse 19, to chapter 11. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, through chapter 11, verse 40. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sitting deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who trampled underfoot the Son of God, who's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming day will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which, through which he was commended as, as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. 
Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went in to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They had not been thinking of that land from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over over the head of the staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea and on dry land, as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled by se- for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, 
so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were skilled with the sword. They went out in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this word of yours which we have just heard. And we pray, O Father, that we would receive it as such, your word. We ask, O Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you your truth. We pray, Father, that you would amend our ways and our hearts, that we might more faithfully serve you. And we pray, O Father, that by your word you would do surgery in our hearts, spiritually, such that our faith might be increased and strengthened. And we pray that you would um, guide this preacher, that you would chain him to the text of your word, that he might freely declare truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned just a moment ago, we're now coming to the beginning of what we would call the mostly exhortation part of the book, where he's giving exhortations, admonishments, encouragements with regards to how should we then live with regards to all these great truths we've been learning about Christ. This particular section in chapters 1019 through 1140, we can say that it is the primary exhortation and the main idea in this is holding on to the greater than, holding on to him. We saw in the previous section that the previous section was not without its admonitions and exhortations, but it was largely exposition on the superiority of Christ, who is the one who is the greater than. He's greater than every prior revelation, thus he's the greatest prophet. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than all the sacrifices that could possibly ever be offered. And now we're turning our attention to the so what. We see the implications of these truths fleshed out in the form of exhortations, admonishments, and encouragements. The first section that we're looking at has everything to do with holding on to Christ by faith. In chapter 12 and verse 1 uh, to the end, we'll see the principle of enduring and persevering in the one who is greater than, who is the greater than, and persevering in all of our Christian duty. In verses 19 through 22, we have a, uh, in our section today, we're looking at verses 19 through 25. In the first part of it, in verses 19 through 19 through uh, 21, we have a summary of what has come before as the basis for the exhortations that follow in verses 22, 23, and 24. And then in verse 25, we have the necessary context for fulfilling those exhortations. In verse 22, we have the call to draw near. In verse 23, we have the call to hold on tightly. And in verse 24, we have the call to consider one another and exhorting and encouraging each other to love and good works, flowing from that drawing near 
and holding on to Christ. And so we have those three exhortations that are enveloped as well by the basis and the necessary context. And so first of all, we'll look at the basis for the, those exhortations through a summary of what we've learned. We won't go into too much detail as we have been spending a lot of time on these things. But we see that we have two absolute and unshakable realities that are laid out before us in verse 19. That first of all, we have confidence or boldness to enter into the holy places. That is, into God's presence on account of the blood of Jesus. That is, we have one who on account of his superior person, on account of his superior priesthood, on account of his superior sacrifice, has granted us access to God such that we have the approach. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, when he talked about the approach that we have as an introduction to the superior priesthood that Christ has. In which he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Built on the fact that we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, a high priest who sympathizes with us, who's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the access that we have is a new and is through a new and living way. It's not, as it says in verse 19, by the new and living way that he has opened for us, verse 20, through the curtain that is through his flesh. That access is through a new and living way, not in accordance with the law which ministers death and condemnation, but in accordance with the new and living way which was torn down, which has torn down the curtain. That way is the flesh the body of Jesus put upon the cross. God incarnate in the person of Jesus for whom a body was prepared that we read in chapter 10, verse 5. So we have this great reality that we have boldness and confidence to have an entrance to God's presence, to go before Him, to draw near to Him. The second reality that we have in verse 21, is that we have such a great priest who sits over and intercedes for the whole household of God. Remember what a priest is. A priest is one who intercedes on behalf of others. A priest is a go-between between God and man. The priesthood in the Old Testament economy offered those sacrifices on behalf of the people. The people could not directly go and offer those sacrifices. It had to be a priest. Christ is our great high priest who is greater than the entire priesthood being a greater priesthood of a different order who intercedes on our behalf through his priestly work, through his offering of himself, through the life that he lived, through his reverence, he ushered in a new covenant and thus he was heard on our behalf because of his reverence. We have a priest whose ministry is not beset with weakness. Thus, he was tempted, as we are, but without sin. And he has a priesthood that is of a superior order. And because he's a priest who's a man, 
who's a human like you and I. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And the sacrifice was not one that he simply brought. It was not a, it was not a goat, a bull, a dove, or any other thing or animal. But rather, the sacrifice was himself. And it was offered once and for all time. And transcends time. So thus we truly have a strong foundation upon which we stand. We have no other footing on which we stand. We've learned that to turn to another footing is not to turn to something else. It is to turn to no footing at all. When I was a child, I used to watch the Saturday morning cartoons. And there's one I always liked watching. And it was a coyote chasing after a roadrunner. Wild E. Coyote. And some of the funniest scenes are when he chases after and he, and, he ends up, uh, and he ends up going off the cliff and he suddenly realizes he has no footing underneath him and down he goes. That is what happens when we turn from Christ. We have no footing. So on that basis, we now turn to these three exhortations in verses 23, 22, 23, and 24, which are largely restatements of exhortations that have already been given. It's a summary form. First of all, we have this exhortation in verse 22, to draw near. What is it to draw near? And to whom are we drawing near? Well, the call here is to draw near to God, to approach the throne of grace, to go to Him in prayer, in worship, and in service. All rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. Drawing near is the idea of approaching God. Since we have such a great entrance, He says, let us enter. Let us look to God and call out to Him. We see that in drawing near, just as we see in the book of James, when we draw near to God, the devil flees. We saw that in just in the passage that we just read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. <clears throat> what she says, let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So draw near to God. And there's certain things that he says about drawing near to him. He says to draw near, first of all, with a true heart. He says, in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First of all, we see drawing near with a true heart. What does it mean to have a true heart? We could read that in terms of that we approach God with a heart of sincerity. And while indeed a fruit of our union with Christ is that our hearts grow in their sincerity, our hearts can never be sincere enough in order that it would qualify us to draw near to God. Rather, this is our hearts being made new by the truth. 
We read earlier in the book of Hebrews that he writes his law on our hearts. He gives us new hearts. He takes our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. That is, hearts that have been made new by the blood of Jesus. It is a heart that does not presume upon God by means of thinking oneself is worthy of his ear. Rather, we draw near through Jesus Christ. We draw near with humility, knowing ourselves to be those who, apart from his grace, are worthy of but eternal condemnation in hell. We draw near because he has made us new, because he has given us living hearts. Because he has, as we'll see in a moment, cleansed our hearts. Because he has made us new and given us life. Because our hearts have been exposed to and given truth. Jesus said that to the woman at the well, those who worship me will worship me in spirit, will worship God in spirit and truth. That is, those who have the truth and those who have the Spirit. Those who have the truth and those who have the Spirit. We also see that we are to draw near in full assurance of faith. What do we speak of when we speak of assurance? What is the assurance that God has done for us what we need is the assurance that flows from Jesus Christ. And where does this assurance come from? What is the foundation of this assurance of faith? And I would say, first of all, the assurance does not come from faith itself, but it comes from that which faith rests upon. Because faith by itself that does not have an object is no faith at all. To say when the scripture calls us to believe it's not saying something like during, uh, during championship uh, season of various different sports when the sports teams all try to sport well and the fans all say, believe. It's like, believe what? Believe in what? No, the assurance of faith has to everything to do with looking to the one who is the greater than to rest on him and to receive from him. So from where does this assurance of faith come? It does not come from something we work up in ourselves. It does not come from crossing T's and drawing and dotting, dotting I's. Although it is good for a Christian to cross, it is good and necessary in our lives to cross our T's and dot our I's in following our Lord. It is good and necessary for us so to do. But that is not from whence comes this assurance of faith. Those confirm our assurance. But where it comes from is by looking to Christ, remembering the one who is the greater than. So the first of these three postures, we also see here the first of the three postures that Paul speaks about in a number of different places, those three postures of the Christian as of faith, hope, and love. And we see the first of these three mentioned here. And that would not be mentionable, except for the fact he also, in these three exhortations, mentions hope and love as well, the author does. And so the first of these three postures is mentioned of faith, hope, and love. 
And so what is it to have full assurance of faith? It is to believe upon the gospel, believe upon Christ, to receive from him by resting on him. And it is in that we find a true heart. Now, furthermore, he also states, with our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What is it to have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience? Is this something that we need to repeat over and over and over and over and over again? First of all, notice that this is passive. It does not say having, having, having gone and ourselves sprinkling our hearts clean from an evil conscience, but rather what it says our hearts having been sprinkled from an, ev- from an evil conscience. What is it that we have been uh, reading about in this gospel, in this book of Hebrews, about perfecting the conscience, about cleansing the conscience? It is not the law that cleanses the conscience, but rather the blood of Christ that cleanses the conscience. So the qualification to draw near is our hearts, our consciences having been cleansed, By what? By the blood of Jesus Christ. If our consciences have been cleansed, if we look to Jesus, our consciences are clean. Our consciences do no longer have any authority to accuse us, though our consciences might accuse us because we are still full of sin. Because we still sin, that accusation falls flat because Jesus died for our sins and thus we say i know jesus and where he is there i shall be also all all of these things are rooted in the fact that god something has been done for us and not by us and then we see and our bodies washed with pure water of what is this speaking our bodies being washed with pure water we could look at this as a reference to the ritual washings that the uh, worshipers of the Old Covenant had to go through. It was not only various different sacrifices that had to be offered, but ritual cleansings needed, needed to be carried, carried out to cleanse from uncleanness. The washing of the arms and washing of the feet. And it could be referring to that as an illustration. We could also look at this in terms of water baptism. And hear me out before you start, before you start uh, saying that the washing of our bodies is that which qualifies us. Before you start thinking I'm saying that, I'm not. But Paul was told when he was received by Ananias, after he'd been struck blind, and after he turned to Jesus, Ananias told him, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When we think of water baptism, what is, we've learned a few times in sermons when we've had baptisms, baptism speaks a word to us. It's not just, some, it's not just us going underwater, but baptism speaks a word. It speaks a promise. It speaks a pledge. And as much as our bodies have been washed with water, it speaks this, so our sins have been washed away. We learn that the washing with water does not itself wash away our sins. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. But we do learn this. Just as water removes dirt from the body, so the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit 
take away our sins. In our baptisms, we receive the sign and pledge from God of this, that as that as we are truly washed, that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with pure waters. That is, we've received this sign as a testimony of what God has done. It is a sign. It is not the thing. And so the principle being that in baptism, we have a word that has been spoken to us. We can say, I have this testimony that's been given to me, and so I'm qualified to draw near. And because all of these things are true, because for a believer, the believer has a true heart that's been made new, the believer has the full assurance of faith, the believer has his, heart, his or her heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, testified to by the waters of baptism. Because of all of these things are true, we can and we must draw near. We must and can pray. We can approach. We can worship. We can seek God. We must do these things. Because all of this, all of this is true, it is vital for our own Christian faith, for our own endurance, for our own perseverance, that we draw near that we go to Him in prayer, that we go to Him in worship, that we go to Him in, 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 union, in union with Him, in fellowship with other believers, that we approach Him, that we seek Him. It is vital for us so to do. The second exhortation that we have is let us hold tightly to the confession of our hope. He says that in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. First of all, to hold tightly to the confession of our hope. We've heard this before in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we just read it in Hebrews chapter four, um, verse 14, which he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We also saw that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. When he says, so that by two unchangeable things, number one, that God has made an oath and that it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. It is not simply to hold fast, uh, to hold on, but it says to hold on without wavering or to hold on tightly. What is it we think of when we think of wavering? Someone wavers. They go off course. Or they do not hold on tightly. To be without wavering is to hold steady, to hold securely, to hold tightly, 
to not look to the left or the right, to not look back. We are called upon here to look to Christ and to hold on to him, to continue believing with all uh, as if nothing else matters, because in light of eternity, nothing else truly does matter. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is told by evangelist to look at yon, to, to look at yon wicker gate making his way there and just to look at that gate and follow that path. And every time, every time he took his eyes off that gate, he ended up going through some sort of severe difficulty that jeopardized his faith. Whether that was the slew of despond whether that was chasing after the um, Mr. Legality who led him up the hill that never seemed to end. Or consider Lot's wife when she looked back. As they were fleeing from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, she looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Why is it that we must hold on to him we may call into question if why is it so important well it's because God has made a promise and he who made the promise is faithful we have every reason to hold on because God said he's going to do something and we learned in Hebrews chapter 6 when God makes an oath he has no one else by whom to swear because there's no higher authority and he swears by himself and it is impossible for him to lie So if he said, I will bring you safe to the end, hold on to me, we have every reason so to do. Because he who made the promise is faithful. He hits on that later here in chapter 10. And then we have, what is it to that which we hold fast? The confession of our hope. There we have, once again, the second of those three postures of the Christian, faith, hope, and love. But the confession, what is our hope? That in Jesus Jesus Christ, God has fulfilled promise for us and has brought us into a new covenant in himself through Jesus Christ. That is the confession of our hope. So we hold on to that good confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it that Paul says in Romans? We confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the confession. Who Jesus is, what he has done for us. And tied to that is also maintaining a sound understanding of Jesus. We don't have a doctrineless confession or profession. The very confession, Jesus is Lord, is pregnant with doctrinal background and implication. When we confess and what we confess, who we confess and what we confess go hand in hand. If we confess Jesus, but that Jesus is a different one from the faith once delivered, well, we're confessing something and someone, but it's not Jesus. When we encounter challenges to 
our Christian faith. We might, or when we encounter discussions on things, we might just say, well, we just need to love Jesus. And yes, we do need to love Jesus. But I must ask, which Jesus are we called upon to love? The Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses is no Jesus. The Jesus of the Mormons is no Jesus. The Jesus whose sacrifice needs to be offered over and over and over again is to trust in the, to trust in those Jesuses is not to hold fast to the confession. And this is a fruit of our union with Christ holding on. Second John verse nine says this, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. And right before that, we see many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver the Antichrist. These Antichrists, these deceivers, are people who are confessing someone named Jesus. But the Jesus they confess did not come in the flesh. Most likely they viewed him as some sort of apparition or a phantom. Or that, yes, he was bodily, but he wasn't really truly human. Such people are confessing something but they're not confessing Jesus. So we must hold on to the good confession. Christianity is confessional. We confess something and we hold on to that thing, or in this case, this person we confess. And then we have this third exhortation. In verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Here this third exhortation is consider one another. Notice the thrust here is not on considering how I might stir myself up. But rather it is about considering how you and I might consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It is not about me seeking how I might do better, but it is me seeking how I might serve my brother and sister in Christ in helping them to love and to serve. And it it is about you doing so for me and us doing so for one another. It's about our brother and sister in Christ. I need you and you need me. And we all need each other to be considering how to stir one another up to love and good works because I am insufficient to do it for myself and you are insufficient to do it for yourselves. Christianity is a one another activity. We see... Uh, we we can actually see that what we read earlier in chapter six of Hebrews.
in which he says, and see to it that none of you has an unbelieving heart. It's taken by an evil and unbelieving heart. So we must ensure that we are seeking the good and the benefit of one another. The exhortation is to love and to good works, to stir one another up, to love and good works. When we think of love, we have that third posture of the Christian love. What is it to love? We might think of love as having uh, pleasant feelings when we're around somebody. And as those pleasant feelings come and go, depending on how we might be acting or that person might be acting. I've shared this story before, but a dear friend of mine told his now wife when they were uh, courting one another, she told him, I love you. And he decided to respond theologically. He responded with, uh, kind of nervously, I will your good. And her response was, of course, what? And he said, let me explain what I mean. To say I will your good means that I love you. It means that I am seeking your good. And he explained that. And that is what it is to love. It is to love one another in word and deed, to seek the good of one another, to seek the good of our neighbor. Also involves compassion, involves tenderheartedness, and involves can also involve admonishment and rebuke. All those are matters of love for one another. So we must be stirring one another up to love. If we read the letter of 1 John, one of the great things that it speaks about is love for your brother and sister in Christ. And the one who does not love his or her brother or sister in Christ, he says, does not have the love of God in them. We see also to stir one another up to good works to works that God has laid out for us, having gone before us, to consider how we might spur one another on in encouragement and exhortation and admonishment, to think how can we spur one another on, whether it would be through encouraging or exhortation and admonishment. And he does not simply say this, this is the task of something that needs to come from the pulpit. From the elders. This says from one another. This is so important because we need each other. In order for us, and we're going to see this in just a moment, in order for us to continue to draw near, in order for us to hold fast our confession, we need one another. A lone ranger, private Christian who isolates himself is like a coal that is removed from the fire. Those coals keep one another hot. The moment you pull a coal from that fire, what happens to that coal? It begins cooling down. 
begins fading out. Which brings us to the other side of the envelope, to the other bookend, we might say, in verse 24, the first bookend being the basis that we've talking about, the, sec- the, f- the other bookend being in verse 24, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The necessary context here involves assembling of ourselves together, being together. In particular, most likely idea because of the word that is in there, episynagogue, has to do with the regular assembling of the saints. The three exhortations are bookended by the supporting ideas on either side. And this, this final exhortation serves as a support for those three exhortations and gives the necessary context and a means by which we continue to draw near, by which we hold on to the hope, our confession of our hope, and in which we stir one another on to good and love and good works and love. And it has to do with this, the assembling of ourselves together. It is, I would posit, typically, ordinarily, impossible for us to continue to persevere in drawing near, for one to endure in the faith, for one to maintain sound doctrine and to stir other believers onto love and good works in the way that's being spoken of here, apart from being united to and assembling with a body of believers, apart from one another. F.F. Bruce says of this, Paul had urged the Roman Christians to welcome one another for God's glory as Christ had welcomed them. But towards the end of the apostolic age, we are made aware of a tendency in some quarters to withdraw from the Christian fellowship. It was a given early on in Christianity, but by the end of the, by the, end of the first century, it appears that there was a tendency to withdraw. In the book of Acts, we can read language such as in Acts 20. As was our custom, we, met on the, we customarily met on the first day of the week. We saw that they met together going from house to house. And the context here, as we're going to see in coming passages, believers, understandably fearing persecution. Persecution is not something we say, yeah, let's have it. It's something that we don't, we don't, want, we don't, we don't look forward to not something we invite, but it's something that comes the way of believers. It's understandable to fear it. It's, understa- it's understandable to try to get away from it. But here, in fearing persecution, they were doing the sinful thing and playing with fire by neglecting to, assemb- by neglecting to assemble together out of fear of being associated with, oh, there's the Christians. He says, whether, it's, whether specifically this group of people was doing this or were doing this or not, he's warning them about it because he says it's the habit of some. The word when he says assembling together, I mentioned the Greek word is episunagogon. You may recognize a synagogue in there. What was the synagogue? But it was the meeting of the Jewish, 
of, of the Jewish people after the temple was gone. They would meet together in synagogue and as synagogue. It's, uh, the word synagogue is from soon what's with and ago, which is I go, go together. The idea of coming together. It was a marked out meeting. The very word church, the Greek word behind it, ekklesia. It is an assembly. That's what the word means. It's an assembly that's been called, but it's a called assembly. The church is by its definition an assembly and a gathering. Does not, do not the scriptures say that God is going to gather from the east and the west? The universal church will have a manifestation visibly one day as a grand gathering. It's a grand assembly. A local church is by its nature a definition of a local assembly. In, this, in the era in which this was written, there was, a common, there was something that was commonly known as an ecclesia that was not religious. Well, there was religious elements to it, but it was the Roman Senate. It was called an ecclesia. It was called an assembly, a gathering. A little word before we go on. There are those who, due to providential hindrance, you know, deployment, being in a Navy town, um, illness, other things that come in our way that hinder us. Because those things happen do not mean, and we're not able to come, do not mean we are neglecting the assembly. And there are those who are homebound and cannot assemble. They are not neglecting. They are, by virtue of God's providential work, unable to. And I would argue that Christians have an obligation to actually go to them and assemble with them and minister to them. It's one reason why the ministry of pastoral visitation is so important. And one of the reasons why it is the neglecting of it, even the neglecting of it is not good. Also, there are those who are recovering from being wounded and hurt in an extraordinary way by church leadership in different ways. With such people, patience and gentleness is absolutely necessary. But why is this important, not neglecting to assemble together? Well, because, as we just read, we need each other. The church is one body with many members. No member can say to another, I don't need you. What is a hand without a body? This is from uh, a summary of 1 Corinthians 12. What is a hand without a body? What happens if I separate my finger from my hand? What happens to that finger? It has a couple hours before it has a couple hours to get reattached. Otherwise, it becomes no good. It's just a a hand without a body is just a dead piece of flesh. The text says we need to rather than withdrawing from the assembly to encourage, to exhort, to admonish one another. We need to admonish one another to come. We need to encourage one another in our pursuit of Christ and faith. We need to exhort one another on to love and good works. Because God is ordained. God has also ordained that we are not our own elders and under shepherds. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
God has appointed in his economy, has appointed men whom he has called to serve as under-shepherds and elders, to watch over the souls under their care. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, we read that he has also appointed elders. Likewise, you who are... Uh, 5 verses 1 through 5, I should say. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We see that God has appointed elders to shepherd. That's to lead, guide, and care for the flock of God and are to do so willingly and not as domineering overlords. And we need the preaching of the word. We might say, but I listen to, name your favorite name, on the radio or on the internet. And I enjoy listening to them as well. I enjoy hearing some of those people that are out there. But I must also remember that that person I'm listening to is not preaching with my particular spiritual needs in mind. He's preaching to where his own congregation is. The one whom God has appointed has placed in the context of a body of believers, is called to preach the word and to preach it in such a way that it challenges the thoughts, assumptions, and actions of the people under his care. And each church is in a different place, which is why you might wonder why some churches are not addressing certain things and other churches are. It's probably because the elders say, church is not in, our church is not dealing with that. And to be preaching, in fact, they're really strong in that. And to be spend time preaching on that would be preaching to the choir. We also need the sacraments. The sacraments gain their means. Oh, we all might also say we read the word every day. Yeah, it's important for us to read the word every day. Don't want to deny the, the uh, deny the minimize that. But I would also also warn us that. The greatest heretics in church history read their Bible every day. Arius was an avid Bible reader, but he was also a man who denied Christ and said, Jesus is not God. You see, we need the accountability of one another in our Bible reading, in our doctrinal holding. We also need the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism. Because they speak to us a good word. They speak to us the word of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They, the body and the blood of Christ declared to us in the bread and the wine. Present to us. Present to our faith. Ministers to us Christ as he is present to us by faith. For we hear in 1 Corinthians 10 is not the... Bread that we break, a fellowship in the body of Christ, and is not the cup that we bless, a fellowship in the blood of Christ. 
And we need each other's voices, each other's songs, each other's prayers, each other's drawing near and holding on. There are times, and I'm being honest, when I am really despondent and I have a hard time drawing near and I feel like I'm just holding on by a thread. And if we're honest, each of us finds ourselves in times and places like that. I need to be with you all so I can hear and see you all draw near and see you all hold on. And as you do with me, and one another. I need to be with you all so we can help each other in that. There's a man who used to be a Lutheran pastor, but he ended up disqualifying himself, and after many years came back to uh, faith, came back to an under re-understanding of faith in Christ, and has a very keen insight into the gospel of Christ. Recently, he and his wife lost a child. <clears throat> his name is Chad Bird. And he found himself in church having a hard time singing because he was so despondent and so sad. But he found himself greatly encouraged to hear his fellow saints singing and rejoicing in the Lord. It drew him near. How much more so when we are not, how much more so when we are not under persecution Are we neglectful if we are neglecting the assembling of ourselves together? Simply as a matter of convenience. And we come up with all sorts of excuses and sometimes make much of them. One might say, we might say it, but I'm too busy and have too much work. We learn in the scriptures that we have six days to do all of that. If we can't spare a couple of hours one day a week, Where are our priorities? What is it we consider most important? It also speaks much of what we really want because under ordinary circumstances, there are extraordinary circumstances where this is not true, but under ordinary circumstances, we ultimately do what we want to do. We might also say, oh, but I need time for rest and leisure. And again, there are those who are ill and need time for rest. But what can be a more important rest than celebrating our rest in Christ? Again, we have six days in which to find time for leisure. It's an issue of management and priorities. Or we might say there are too many hypocrites. My response to that is, well, welcome to the club. Or we might say, I'm uncomfortable around this, such a person or this group of people because they're weird. And on my response, I've heard this before, and I would say, and you're not? And secondly, we need to get over ourselves. And on a related note, we might say, but I don't like it when people other than the pastor try to give me exhortation. And again, I would say, we need to get over ourselves. Do we not hear the pride in that very statement? How much we think of ourselves when we say that? Besides, are we not called upon to exhort one another? Now, there's tasteful and untasteful and couth and uncouth ways of exhorting. And maybe we might learn how to not be bulls in china shops at times. 
but we all but it, we need to remember each of us has our own failings or we might say well the pastors i have this hobby horse that i think is really important and the pastors won't ride my hobby horse now the pastors the pastors of a church have a responsibility to preach the whole counsel of, of the word of god and to minister to the entirety of the body of christ that is under their care Or let's say one of us moves to another location and we can't find a church with all the details of the teaching and practice that we might want. And so instead of, uh, and so we end up stopping and not going and maybe start just doing our own thing on Sundays or starting something independently all by ourselves. I would exhort such a person Either find, find one a good driving distance to which to go. It's that important. Or, and then maybe find housing closer to that body of believers. Or, recognize that we need the body and commit to a true church, though they may be not as, say, reformed as we would like. Or we might say, but such and such offended me. I would say, and who of you, and, and you have never offended anyone. But also, my dear brothers and sisters, that is no excuse to absent ourselves from the assembly, from the, very me- from the means of grace he has given. Rather, we must forgive. Our own articles of faith state this. 26.13 of our Articles of Faith, no church member upon any offense taken by a fellow member ought to disturb the order of the church or absent themselves from its assemblies or the administration of its ordinances on account of such offense, but should wait upon Christ and the further proceedings of the church, having himself performed his duty towards the person. Now, if the offending party won't be reconciled and won't turn from their offense, there is a process called church discipline. the offending party has committed a grievous crime against us then we should ensure that we involve God's servant of justice and God's servant of justice in the world is not the church God's servant of justice in the world is the state the authorities rather than absenting ourselves in fact I say this if any one of you come I would say this to you if any one of you come to me and tell me that another member or even a leader in this church has committed a grievous crime or assaulted you and or your children and whatever type of assault there is. My counsel to you is to call is to call upon that minister of justice. The 911 and then call me. If I find out that anyone who can't defend themselves is the subject of shuts, then I'm calling them myself. It's better we do right than try to hide things. I'm calling the police myself. Or we might say, I just can't, there's just not enough people like me. Whether that would be our ethnicity or our age or marital status or having children or the number of children or the ages of the children. You would not believe 
how often I, he- I have heard, not necessarily here, but from other pastors. I've heard it here in back at Good Shepherd as well. But say, there's not enough people who have, ch- my children are three, two, are four, two, and an infant. And there's no one else who has a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an infant. So I can't be there. Or there's not enough people at my place in life. Again, my brothers and sisters, we need to get over ourselves and remember that every Christian is at our place in life. We are all fighting the same battle. The battle to hold on to Christ and to fight against our own sin. If it's social life and camaraderie, we're, if it's primarily social life and camaraderie we're looking for, there are plenty of social clubs and fraternal organizations out there. In fact, I encourage Christians to engage in such activities. It gets us out among believers. And yes, we can have cordial relations with unbelievers. But if it's spiritual growth and accountability, any true church, any, tr- tr- any church that is true to the word, be they old or young, black, white, yellow, red, or purple with white polka dots is what you're looking for. The church is what you're looking for. I did not tell my wife today why I was wearing my rebel socks. And yes, it is good for Christians to develop social relations with one another and friendships with one another. That is a secondary result of involvement in the church. And it's important. We must remember, Christians, the Christian who is not like me, who lives across the world, I have far more in common with that believer than someone who looks like me and acts like me and is at my place in life who doesn't believe the gospel. John Calvin says of this, It is an evil which prevails everywhere among mankind that everyone sets himself above others, and especially that those who seem in anything to excel cannot well endure their inferiors to be on equality with themselves. That is, you're good at something, you can't stand being around people who aren't good at that thing. That's what he is saying. And then there is... Then there is so much morosity almost in all that individuals would gladly make churches for themselves if they could, for they, for they find it so difficult to accommodate themselves to the ways and habits of others. The rich envy one another, and hardly one in a hundred can be found among the rich who also who allows to the poor the name and rank of brethren. Unless similarity of habits or some allurements or advantages draw us together, it is very difficult even to maintain a continual concord among, our, among ourselves. Extremely needed, therefore, by us all is the admonition to be stimulated to love and not to envy and not to separate from those, whom, uh, from those whom God has joined to us, but to embrace with brotherly kindness all those who are united to us in faith. We need one another, brothers and sisters, even those who are not like us, even those who act different than us, even those who have little quirks and habits like quirks and habits that we all have that over time might irritate us. But we must overlook such things. 
be around and with one another. And I would argue, based on the next passage, we are playing with fire, and maybe eternally, when we try to go it alone. Brothers and sisters, the warning that follows this passage is preceded by this exhortation, not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together. We are sabotaging ourselves and risking the shipwreck of our faith if we are neglecting one another. If we are neglecting and in neglecting one another, weakening our ability to hold fast, weakening our, our ability to draw near, and obviously not considering how to, to stir one another up to love and good works. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a great and grand foundation in Christ Jesus This greater than. And so let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The context of assembling ourselves together and being with one another. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and kind, and we thank you for the goodness that is in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would make clear to us your word in our hearts, that you would help us to believe your word here today, and that we would be committed in being committed to you. We would be committed to one another, and thus help one another to draw near, to hold fast in considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. Pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.